Nisambula Binaka, you're listening to Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific Ngo Okoroi Hawkins. Coming up... The wedding was held in Tahiti and attended by more than 400 people at a time when very strict restrictions were in place. French Polynesia's president is being taken to court for breaching his own government's COVID-19 restrictions. In times of hardships, it's a constant source of income that protects and helps families. Palau government is hosting the Our Oceans Conference, but it's having to defend its own proposal to roll back parts of its national marine sanctuary. PNG is a commodity exporter, and if the price of what you're exporting goes up, uh, that's got to be good for the country. And we speak to development economist Stephen Howes about the Papua New Guinea government's plans for its rebounding economy. French Polynesia's president, Edouard Fritsch, has appeared in court charged with flouting COVID-19 restrictions at the height of the pandemic last year. In August, he was at the wedding of Vice President Thierry Alpha, which was attended by more than 400 people, including almost the entire government. The prosecution has asked for a 3,200 US dollar fine for the president, with the verdict to be announced on the 2nd of June. RNZ Pacific senior journalist Walter Zweifel has been following the story. Kira Walter, so tell us more about the incident in question here. This dates back to August last year, early August, when French Polynesia was in the grip of yet another spike of the pandemic. And uh, Edouard Fritsch, the president of French Polynesia, attended the wedding of his vice president of uh, Thierry Alpha. Uh, the wedding was held uh, in Tahiti and attended by more than 400 people at a time when very strict restrictions were in place. Um, What happened was that uh, people filmed incidents. uh, It got out on social media, was noticed in France, and then days later it broke out as a scandal in French Polynesia, an outrage that the leadership defied the rules that they had put in place. Now, what were the charges and how, how was the court case brought in in terms of this? Well, after it became known back in August, this was just days after the wedding, um, videos were there of uh, Edward Fritsch playing guitar at this wedding. An investigation was launched because it was an apparent breach of regulations. A case was built and then uh, formal charges were laid uh, a month ago with a court case going ahead this month. Uh, and the trial concluding with the verdict being released on the 2nd of June. No one disputes that this event took place. Uh, It's just now a question of how many of these breaches are going to be added up to what sort of fine we're talking here of thousands of dollars of fines going to be dished out, A, to President Fritsch, B, to Thierry Alpha as uh, the organiser of the event, and C, to the owner of the restaurant uh, who apparently let this event go ahead and felt was in no position to deny uh, the French Polynesian leadership uh, having this event. It, it also, it, it just summarises the the relationship that the government has had with the public in, in this pandemic, hasn't it? There's been so much resistance to authority, both for vaccinations and restrictions and all of that in, in French Polynesia. And we can't blame them with things like this going on. Well, it's interesting how it's going up and down in French Polynesia. Uh, when the pandemic broke out two years ago, French Polynesia was very, very strict. Uh, but then 
come July 2020, uh, there was a feeling that uh, the restrictions were too harsh on the tourism industry, and it became the first South Pacific tourist destination to open up the borders. Uh, that was back in July 2020. The consequence of that was that within weeks, there were many, many cases. By the end of that year, French Polynesia briefly had the highest incidence of COVID outside Europe. Uh, with this, with these waves going up and down last year, uh, there was a move to uh, try to curb the Delta outbreak, and uh, this wedding took place in part as part of this Delta outbreak. Weeks after this incident, uh, a law was passed in the Territorial Assembly making vaccinations mandatory for anyone in contact with the public. That, of course, also included uh, members of the French Polynesian Assembly. However, the president of the assembly, Gaston Tongsang, he plainly refused to, to accept that law. Uh, Tehari Alpha also refused to be vaccinated. He claimed that he had a, a special biological condition, uh, but did not explain what it was. Uh, this, of course, caused tension because there's something called collective responsibility and the government had decided that this law should apply. Uh, here we had the vice president who did not want to obey the law. Uh, Edward Fritsch uh, felt pressure from all sides and then decided that he had to have some action. Uh, he then decided to remove the vice presidency from Thierry Alpha, but kept him in the government. That, of course, then did alleviate some tension, but the tourism minister, Nicole Buto, just found it incomprehensible that the government could agree to a system where one of the ministers could purport to be above the law. And so she resigned in protest. She was not replaced. There was a, a reshuffle, a new vice president was brought in. But uh, in, in the grand scheme of things, uh, the tourism portfolio has not been filled by a separate new minister. Um, this vaccination demand or this vaccination law was contested. There were questions on general strikes, resistance, uh, what sort of fines have been imposed, uh, new debate, fines were lowered. Uh, in the end, it was decided that uh, the law should no longer apply to people who are members of the Territorial Assembly. So, and with the situation now, it's basically petered out. Case numbers are down in the few dozens a week now. So the pandemic has somewhat eased but uh, the court case is still lingering and the verdict will come out and in, in all likelihood, Edward Fritsch and the Ari Alpha plus the restaurant owner will be fined thousands of dollars for having defied the law. Palau's fisheries minister says they are trying to find a balance between conservation, protection and production when it comes to the country's marine sanctuary. The government has come under fire in recent months for its plans to reopen the Palau National Marine Sanctuary to commercial fishing. The Minister of Agriculture, Fisheries and Environment, Stephen Victor, says for many years Palau has been very ambitious in the protection of the environment, with 80% of the marine sanctuary closed off to fishing. But he says the radical approach is proving detrimental to good socio-economic outcomes. He spoke with RNZ Pacific Manager Moira Tulepatela in Palau, she began by asking about the significance of Palau and the U.S. co-hosting the Our Ocean Conference, which opens in Koro tomorrow. It is uh, quite significant for Palau as the first uh, small island developing state to host uh, a large uh, event like the Our Ocean Conference. And we thank the United States for uh, helping 
Palau organize uh, this event. Uh, the production itself requires uh, a lot of technical expertise as well as resources and, and the United States was able to come and help us uh, organize uh, the production as well as uh, uh, help uh, sort of lay out uh, a program that uh, is inclusive of everyone's concern and, and that allows for uh, dialogue. So uh, to me that has been uh, one of the greatest sort of what I've seen uh, in terms of uh, partnership to host a, a conference and particularly the, I would say, two big difference within uh, uh, this uh, Palau Our Ocean Conference uh, is that uh, the youth are being integrated within the conference. Uh, in prior conference, the youth would have uh, their own forum and then come uh, to the conference to present their resolution. This time around, we believe that the youth are the future of uh, our planet and they're the future of the ocean. And therefore, we, we believe that they need to be engaged in the conversation with uh, leaders as well as private sectors. So they've been integrated into the conference. And number two, we're in a, a Pacific island and we believe and we felt that uh, uh, ensuring that indigenous voice is integrated within the conference uh, and as we've known uh, based on a lot of uh, studies that indigenous driven conservation is sustainable and, and, and has a long term uh, uh, benefits uh, and so this conference we have a, a seven thematic area around the indigenous uh, uh, leadership so I think those are two key differences uh, that uh, the United States and Palau has partnered to sort of develop uh, within the Our Ocean Conference. And I guess too, um, thinking about things like the traditional knowledge in terms of conservation for a lot of uh, Pacific people, which could contribute quite significantly to as, as the conference develops. For us uh, in the Pacific, a lot of what drives us to achieve conservation is our traditional ecological knowledge and practices. These are things that uh, our ancestors and our parents uh, did in the past to ensure that we have uh, and we still have uh, an ocean and marine resources that we have today and that continues uh, to drive uh, how uh, many of the Pacific Island as well as many indigenous communities uh, sort of view uh, conservation uh, uh, we're present with uh, a challenge of uh, how do we make sure that we're balancing production and protection. Uh, too much production is not good for the environment, and too much protection is also not good for socioeconomic well-being of communities. So we need to find the balance of protection and production. And for Palau, that's kind of our uh, focus and priority in this conference is to ensure that dialogue happens and that we walk away with uh, a more, a greater appreciation of the need to have that conversation around production and protection. And I think also that Palau is very much a leader in terms of conservation as well. Yes, and Palau uh, for many years have made a very high um, ambitious uh, uh, conservation uh, protection and the environment. For example, the Palau National Marine Sanctuary, which essentially closed 80% of our ocean. We had a, a juncture at this ocean conference where re realizing some of the weakness of having an 80% closure, and, and we need to 
readjust that. There's a big noise uh, out in the Palawan community and globally that readjusting 80% is rolling back uh, conservation, but that's essentially not what we're trying. We're trying to ensure that uh, the policy as well as management is durable. And being durable meaning it has to balance uh, production and protection. There's too much emphasis on protection that is causing socioeconomic hardship to the people of Palau. And we believe that uh, Palau has already a lot of uh, policies in place that protects the ocean. We're one of the few countries in the world that bans deep sea mining. We ban uh, bottom trolling. We've established the first uh, nationwide national marine sanctuary. We ban uh, percent fishing on uh, free floating fats. So essentially, the whole of Palau's ocean is a sanctuary. We're simply sort of readjusting uh, a domestic fishing zone that becomes uh, financially viable that then can generate enough revenue to support uh, management and to support the uh, uh, people of Palaus. And so that it becomes a durable policy that has durable conservation benefits and durable uh, contribution to Palau's economy. I guess COVID-19 has made this... Um brought some of these issues forward more than probably what would have been it's um, impacted a lot of the Palau economy as it has many Pacific nations. Yes and while the the pandemic has been uh, a great uh, challenge uh, for the whole world I also see it as an opportunity to reset how we view nature. Many of us uh, during the pandemic went back uh, to relying on nature for our sustenance. And to me, that is the essence of why we do conservation, is to help support uh, the communities. And so three years ago, when we talk about the need for balance of production and protection, many people didn't really believe that we will come to a point where our food supply will run out. Just a year ago, we were realizing that. We were realizing that today, making conservation a much more critical discussion to be had and ensuring that we're balancing uh, production with protection because it is the resource that we fall back into in times of hardships. It is the resource that helps generate income to indigenous communities. While it may be small, it's a constant source of income that protects and helps families. So to me, it's the safety net that we need to protect, but making sure that uh, protection and production are balanced and so that it does not become hardship to uh, indigenous and to coastal communities. While much of the world is experiencing severe economic pain because of the soaring cost of oil and other commodities, for countries like Papua New Guinea, there is a distinct positive coming from it. PNG's economy has been in turmoil for years, largely because of a slump in its return on commodities like liquefied natural gas. Don Wiseman spoke with Australian National University development economist Stephen House, who told him better returns are now expected and the government is already making plans. PNG is a commodity exporter, and if the price of what you're exporting goes up, uh, that's got to be good for the country. And as you said, as oil prices have gone up, they're at a sort of 10-year high. But PNG also exports copper and gold, and they're at a 25-year high. So, you know, from that point of view, uh, it is a good environment for PNG as a resource exporter. But it's not that simple. It will take time. 
I mean, obviously the companies that are exporting those materials are going to benefit, but they are largely foreign multinationals. So if we look at the benefits to PNG, they will come from the taxes, corporate taxes that are imposed on those companies. And you know, the PNG government does have some minority equity stakes and of course does own Octeti as well. So those are the mechanisms by which the PNG economy more broadly will benefit. Uh, and it will take some time for those benefits to come through, you know, for dividends to be paid to the government and, and even longer for those tax. There's often a lag of one year on, on corporate taxes in relation to, to profits. So I think the way to look at it is that it will be a benefit for PNG, but it's it's not going to be immediate. And in the, in the immediate, in the very short term, you know, we are seeing some pain. Yes. Well, the country has been in a lot of economic trouble for some time, hasn't it? That's right. So it's inherited a sort of stagnant uh, economy yeah, ever since the end of the PNG LNG construction. It's the, the economy has been struggling. And in the immediate term, oil, oil prices have gone up. So motorists having to pay more uh, for petrol at, at the petrol pump. And the other problem they've got is the shortage of foreign exchange. And even though they, they are exporting oil, they have to pay for the oil they use uh, in dollars. And because of the shortage of foreign exchange, and, and now if the oil price has gone up, that sort of made that, that foreign exchange shortage more acute. Uh, so there definitely is some, uh, some short-term pain that the, the economy is going through as a result of these, uh, especially the higher oil prices. And the government has actually announced a cut, in fact, uh, actually a, um, a waiver of its uh, GST, you know, or value added tax uh, on sort of basic commodities, uh, including petrol, but also some sort of basic food items uh, for a six month period. I think that's meant to start actually this month or, or in the coming month and, and, and go for six months uh, to provide some, some relief to consumers. And what will that do to government coffers? Well, you see, because they are expecting, you know, and rightly so, they are expecting a boost from the higher commodity prices to flow back into government, uh, A, through dividends, and B, through higher tax proceeds. So I think, you know, this, this particular adjustment is affordable, but you know, as, as you've intimated, there, there are a number of underlying economic and fiscal issues, partly due to COVID. Uh, the government is running a very high deficit. So you'd hope from PNG's point of view, uh, it'll actually be good if these higher prices remain, then consumers can get used to those high, they'll have to get used to the higher prices. Now, the GST waiver will be temporary, but there'll be longer term gains from those those higher resource prices. Uh, if the resource prices fall again, well, then it's, a, it's kind of a short term short term problem, but also a short term gain. And the, the underlying problems uh, of the economy will, will be very, very, very pressing. We'll put it this way. To solve the underlying fiscal problems, you, you'll need to have uh, very high prices for, for a very long time. Eight or nine years ago, when the ExxonMobil scheme was coming on and commodity prices were high, the country was talking about annual growth rates of 14 to 15% and this sort of thing. And there was a splurge on spending and big roads being put in and Port Moresby and this sort of thing. Do you think there's a danger that if there's another lift here now that the government might throw money at things that perhaps they shouldn't be. So it's a very different situation to the one that you, you accurately described sort of around 2012, where there, there was a boom and definitely the government got carried away and became overconfident. And so even though there was a boom, they started borrowing against this idea that the boom was going to continue and they could bring forward the benefits. Uh, yeah, that really backfired when the, uh, the LNG project, when it actually went into production, didn't generate 
the tax revenues for government that were expected. I mean, and we can discuss why, why that is. But ever since then, the economy has been suffering and the government has had the additional burden of having to, to, to pay back those loans that were taken out during the boom period. So right now, I think the difference is, I mean, the government then was using up the fiscal capacity it had because it was in a boom, whereas now the government's used up all that capacity. I mean, they are running record levels of deficits. So there's simply no room to further stimulate the economy at this stage. Why wasn't there such a good return from the ExxonMobil deal? Yeah, that is a, that's a great question. And it's one that's been researched uh, quite a lot. There was some modeling done that definitely predicted very high returns. But when you look at that modeling uh, in hindsight, I think it, it underestimated the costs of the project. There, there was a cost blowout. And so that meant that the profits weren't as high as expected and therefore the revenue to government not as high as expected and then there was some bad luck just when the project was coming into production uh, oil prices fell uh, that was in in 2014 2015 and since the gas price is linked to the oil price uh, that also uh, depressed profits so i think those are two reasons third one is the way the, the tax is structured is that first of all the companies get to to write off their costs first before they start paying uh, a lot of tax. I mean, that's fairly common, but, you know, it is definitely one of the things uh, the PNG government's now trying to rectify in future projects so that more of the tax is brought forward. And I'd say the final factor was that, you know, this was the first big LNG project. And I think the government gave the project to the sponsors, you know, to Exxon and AllSearch on, on pretty favorable terms. Uh, it didn't have a lot of negotiating power and the lack of return to date uh, reflects that as well. That brings us to the end of Pacific Waves for today. Remember, you can download us free to your device from Spotify, iHeart, Apple Podcasts. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us. More than one now.